What does every grocery store aisle now have in common? Products that come in paper packaging. And not just the obvious ones like cereal boxes and juice cartons. From beauty products to boxed water, there are more opportunities to go papertarian than ever before. So why should you? Because paper comes from a renewable resource and can be recycled up to seven times. Simply put, it's the smart choice for the environment. And it turns out the easiest choice for you. Learn more at howlifeunfolds.com slash papertarian. I'm Tracy from Stuff You Missed in History Class. Are you a small business owner or even someone who dreams of entrepreneurship? Then check out Season 2 of Mind the Business, small business success stories from iHeart Podcasts and Intuit QuickBooks. Join hosts Austin Hankwitz and Janice Torres as they interview entrepreneurs sharing insights around starting and nurturing a small business. You won't want to miss these inspiring stories of entrepreneurship and discovering ways to business differently so you can too. Focus Features presents Back to Black. I want people to hear my voice and just forget their troubles. Experience the music and her story. Know this. I ain't no spy girl. Like never before. That's my daughter. That's my Amy. On the big screen. I want to be remembered. For just being me. Amy Winehouse, Back to Black, directed by Sam Taylor Johnson. Rated R, under 17, not a minute without parent. Only in theaters May 17th. Happy Saturday. Today is the anniversary of the Wright Brothers' first controlled-powered sustained flight, which took place on the Outer Banks of North Carolina in 1903. So today's Saturday Classic is our 2017 episode, Five First Flight, which talks about the Wright Brothers' first flight, as well as the flights of four other aviators. Near the beginning of this episode, we note that the people we're talking about in it are all men, but that we have a whole section of our website devoted to women in aviation. Sadly, The format of our website totally changed a few years ago. We no longer have that roundup page, but we do still have all those episodes, and they include people like Jackie Cochran, Harriet Quimby, Bessie Coleman, Beryl Markham, Lillian Bland, the Night Witches, and the Women Air Force Service Pilots. So enjoy! Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class, a production of iHeartRadio. Welcome to the podcast. I'm Tracy V. Wilson. And I'm Holly Fry. So, Holly, you and I have been hosts of the show for a little over four years now. Is that all? Coming up on five, actually. (laughs) Now that I think about it, some patterns have emerged in the, the comments that we get when we share stories on particular topics over those, uh, coming up on five years. Like, mentioning Paul Revere prompts comments about Sybil Luddington, who we talked about in six more impossible episodes, uh, posts about George Gordon, Lord Byron, usually get replies about his daughter, Ada Lovelace, who has also been the subject of a past episode. Um, Anytime we post anything about the Wright brothers, we get lots of comments about other people who are not the Wright brothers who we should be talking about. Yeah. Various levels from, hey, did you know about two... You're horrible and you ignored these important people. (laughs) Right. (laughs) So one reason for all these Wright Brothers comments is that the Wright Brothers first has a lot of qualifiers on it. Uh, People flew in balloons well before the Wrights took to the air in a plane. There were a lot of gliders 
uh, before them as well, as including ones that they designed while they were working toward powered flight. Powered dirigibles also predate powered airplanes, and there were also a lot of heavier-than-air airplanes that managed to get up off the ground, but not necessarily in a way that you could describe as flying. <laughs> falling with style. <laughs> right. <laughs> So when people say that the Wright brothers were first, in quotation marks, uh, there's, there's a series of very particular circumstances we're talking about. We're talking about an aircraft heavier than air that achieved a sustained and controlled and self-powered flight with a person on board, all that stuff together. And really, a lot of these distinctions are kind of arbitrary. There's also some legitimate conversation to be had about just how controlled the Wright brothers' first flights really were. Uh, There was some careening involved in some cases. So we're going to talk about all of that today uh, and some of the other folks who come up pretty often as people who maybe should be considered to have flown before the Wright brothers. And we're going to say right from the beginning that all the men that we're talking about today were all really remarkable in their own way, regardless of whether we get to say first before their achievement. And we also want to know that even though the people that we're talking about today are all men, uh, we have a whole women in aviation tag on our website that has lots of groundbreaking female aviators as well. We are not leaving them out. But we're going to start just as a level set with the Wright brothers. So even among people who agree that they were first, there is still something to disagree on. And that's whether Ohio, where the Wright brothers were from, or North Carolina, where they refined their glider designs and took their first powered flight, should get most of the credit. Whether this interstate disagreement is good-natured or not really depends on who you ask. And both states have references to flight and the Wright brothers' flyer on their license plates and their state quarters. So the Wright brothers started experimenting with flight in the late 1890s. Wilbur wrote to the Smithsonian in 1899 to ask for all the prior research that they had on it, saying that he was, quote, an enthusiast, but not a crank. Overall, though, you know, aside from talking to the Smithsonian and whatnot, they were comparatively quiet about what they were doing. Other innovators, including Samuel Langley of the Smithsonian, were making very public attempts at flight. And it was actually Langley that the Smithsonian first supported as being able to claim first flight status. The Wright brothers, on the other hand, were tinkering, refining, and learning from their mistakes, all without a lot of fanfare. This would become doubly true after their first successful flight, at which point they became very secretive, especially once they were embroiled in a patent war over their flight control system. So the Wright brothers chose the Outer Banks of North Carolina as their testing ground because the constant wind helped with the lift. They first refined the gliders that they were working on until they were satisfied with their aerodynamics, and then they turned their attention to power, developing a lightweight gasoline engine... Uh, and a propeller. The end result was the 605-pound, 11.81-horsepower flyer, which they tried to use for a powered, controlled flight with the person on board on December 14th, 1903. This attempt at Kill Devil Hills with Wilbur flying did not go well. Uh, Rather than creating a wheeled undercarriage, they launched the flyer from a wooden rail, which it traveled down on a wheeled dolly. On December 14th, Wilbur climbed too sharply after leaving that rail, and the flyer stalled and crashed. 
they had it repaired in time for another attempt on December 17th, 1903. And at about 10.35 in the morning, Orville made a brief and, as we noted at the top of the show, somewhat careening 120-foot or 36-meter flight. Stayed aloft for about 12 seconds. They had set up a camera ahead of time, and John T. Daniels activated the shutter to take the now-famous picture of the flyer aloft with Wilbur running alongside of it. They tried three more times that day, taking turns, with their best attempt being their last of the afternoon. Wilbur flew 859 feet, that's about 262 meters, in just under a minute. Then the flyer pitched and, in Orville's words, quote, darted into the ground. They sent their father a telegram that night to tell him the news. Unfortunately, back in their base camp, a gust of wind flipped the flyer over and wrecked it. And at that point, it was too badly damaged to be easily repaired. So that put a temporary end to their attempts at flight. The Wrights kept refining and improving their designs from there, testing and making adjustments as they went. On October 5th, 1905, they flew 38 kilometers near Dayton, Ohio, in the Wright Flyer 3. This was its own type of first. A flight measured in kilometers instead of meters was a feat at the time. Next, we are going to talk about perhaps the Wright's most fanciful challenger. This was self-taught French engineer and aviator Clément Adair. He was born on February 4th, 1841. And like a lot of the other early aviators, he got his start with ballooning. He made his first heavier-than-air craft in 1873, which was pulled on a tether, kind of like a kite. He also studied birds and bats, and they would go on to influence his aircraft designs. Adair's first powered aircraft was a monoplane that he named Aeole, after Aeolus of Greek mythology, and he was granted a patent for it on August 11th, 1890. On October 9th of 1890, it left the ground and moved about 165 feet. That's about 50 meters. But this wasn't really so much a flight as it was a hop. He'd successfully made a vessel that could go in the air and come back down, but it couldn't stay in the air in any sort of meaningful way. Adair claimed he made another more successful attempt in September of the following year, although historians generally doubt that that one actually happened. In 1892, Adair was granted a subsidy from the French Minister of War to work on another aircraft. The result, after a couple of iterations, was the Avion III, another monoplane with twin 20-horsepower steam engines with foot pedals to control the rudder, the rear wheels, and the speed of the propellers. There was also a crank that could change the positioning of the wings. This aircraft never really made it off the ground. On October 12, 1897, it traveled around a circular track in Satori, France, but it never really lifted off. It did briefly come off the track during a test on October 14th, but it didn't remain airborne. This was, you could imagine as like if something hit a, hit a bump mm-hmm. and sort of leapt up in the air. It was that Whee! level of, yeah. <laughs> Because this project was being funded by the Ministry of War, the government had a representative witnessing these tests. And that general's assessment that witnessed them was that though the Avion III had not successfully flown, those tests should continue. The Ministry of War disagreed, and it cut its losses at 65,000 francs. The Avion III eventually made its way to Musée des Arts et Métiers in Paris, but in 1906, Alberto Santos Dumont, who we are going to talk about next, made Europe's first public airplane flight. So 
uh, Clément Adair was really frustrated that he had not gotten here first, and he started claiming that he had made a successful flight aboard the Avion 3, having gone at least 300 feet or 90 meters during those October 14th tests. He offered no substantiation for this claim, though, and it directly contradicted what the general had reported. Flight historians generally agree that this is a fabrication. <laughs> Trying to get in on that... Um... That sweet, sweet first money. Of all the aircraft that we're talking about today, Adair's looked the least like a conventional airplane. He fashioned his with wings patterned after a bat, and the Avion 3's propeller blades looked like feathers. It looks like uh, if a tiny race of forest creatures in a video game tried to make an airplane, which to me sounds delightful, and I wish they all looked that way. It is pretty delightful. (laughs) There will be uh, a picture of it as part of the art for this on our website. So it doesn't appear that he ever actually made a successful, sustained flight. But he did succeed and innovated in other areas, including in telephone technology. He gave a demonstration of his stereo telephone device at the 1881 Paris Exposition of Electricity, and he earned a patent for it later that same year. Adair died in Toulouse on March 5th, 1926. So next we are going to get to another... uh, pretty fascinating character. That is Alberto Santos Dumont. We're going to talk about that after a break. I'm Tracy V. Wilson from Stuff You Missed in History Class. Did you know small businesses make up 99.9% of all businesses in the United States? The world is powered by entrepreneurs. And if you're a small business owner or even someone dreaming of starting your own business, then you'll want to check out Season 2 of Mind the Business, small business success stories from Ruby Studio, from iHeartMedia, and Intuit QuickBooks. And every episode hosts Austin Hankwitz and Janice Torres talk to entrepreneurs about how they've grown from the lessons of launching and nurturing a small business, and how they have found success being their own boss. From the excitement of first starting out to finding the right tools and resources to process invoices and payments like QuickBooks Money, you won't want to miss these inspiring stories of entrepreneurship and discovering ways to business differently so you can too. And if you're a small business owner or even someone dreaming of starting your own business, then you'll want to check out Season 2 of Mind the Business, small business success stories from Ruby Studio, from iHeartMedia, and Intuit QuickBooks. Focus Features presents Back to Black. I want people to hear my voice and just forget their troubles. Experience the music and her story. Know this. I ain't no spy girl. Like never before. That's my daughter. That's my Amy. On the big screen. I want to be remembered. Just being me. Amy Winehouse, Back to Black, directed by Sam Taylor Johnson. Rated R, under 17, not a minute without parent. Only in theaters May 17th. Today I'm going to give you some straightforward advice on how to deal with naughty kids. How about instead of timeouts, time ins? Time for you to start paying some bills. I'm JB Smoove, and that was a full episode of my new podcast, Straightforward. Inspired by guaranteed straightforward pricing from AT&T Fiber. Get what you want without the complicated. AT&T Fiber, live like a giggillionaire. Available wherever you get your podcast. Limited availability in select areas. Visit at slash hypergig for details. Bye. 
Unlike Clément Adair, who, as we said earlier, was self-taught, Alberto Santos Dumont was formally trained in physics and mechanics, as well as in chemistry and in astronomy. He was born in Brazil on July 20th, 1873, and he was the son of a wealthy coffee planter. When he was 18, he went to Paris to study. He was 25 when he started experimenting with ballooning, making his first ascent in Paris on July 4th, 1898, in a balloon he had named Brazil. And he quickly started trying to figure out how to build a practical balloon that could be steered. So at that point, uh, as you may recall from our numerous episodes on ballooning, most balloons could change altitudes, but they were really at the mercy of the wind when it came to the direction of their travel. Figuring out how to make a reliably steerable balloon required him to rethink basically everything, from the shape of the balloon itself, to the materials it was made of, to the system used to steer, to the engine used to drive it. He wound up designing his own 3.5-horsepower gasoline-powered internal combustion engine, that being one that was safe enough to use in a hydrogen-filled bag of gas, which at the time was quite a feat. Like making an internal combustion engine that was was safe enough and reliable enough to not set that bag of gas on fire was a big deal. And the Santos Dumont number one, his first attempt at a steered balloon, ascended on September 18th. He tinkered with the design, and the Santos Dumont number three ascended on November 13th of 1890. He was able to steer it around the Eiffel Tower several times before landing. On October 19th, 1901, the Santos Dumont number six took off from St. Cloud, circled the Eiffel Tower, and returned in under 30 minutes. This earned the Aero Club of France's Deutsch Prize, which had been announced more than a year before in an effort to inspire aeronautical innovation. This prize, which, I mean, this was an accomplishment for sure. They basically set this prize at 100,000 francs, which they did because they didn't think it was actually possible that anybody would pull it off. Uh, So he won that prize and distributed a quarter of it to his crew and then gave the rest of it to the Parisian poor. And at first, they actually tried to deny him the prize because it took a minute and 25 seconds to secure the aircraft at the finish line, putting the trek just over that 30-minute mark. He offered to do the whole thing over again, and the judging committee ultimately reversed their decision. So this was the first uh, really effective demonstration of a practical airship. Previous attempts at airships had been a lot more limited than this design, but after this success, Santos Dumont decided that dirigibles were way too influenced by weather conditions to ever by weather conditions to ever become a truly workable method of transportation. So he turned his attention to heavier than air planes. So back in Brazil, he designed the 14 Bs, or uh, if you're looking at it, it's 14 BIS. And that's a boxy-looking biplane with a 24-horsepower motor. It looked boxy because it was designed from box kites. And unlike the Wright brothers, who used a wooden launching rail to become airborne, he wanted to make an aircraft that could take off under its own means. His first attempt to do so in July of 1906 failed. Another attempt on September 7th barely left the ground, and then a few days later, he made it a meter off the ground. And every time he would sort of address the problems that came up, whatever he discovered that seemed like it was preventing him from reaching a successful flight, he would refine the design, and then he would try again. On October 23rd, 1906, the 14Bs took off, traveled about 60 meters at about three feet in the air, and then landed. 
A flight on November 12, 1906, flew 220 meters. Both of these were obviously after the December 17, 1903 Wright Brothers flight. And he was, in fact, inspired by that success. The reason that people point to Alberto Santos Dumont over the Wright brothers is that this whole distinction of the wheeled undercarriage on the 14 beast versus the wooden launching rail that the Wright flyer was using. The argument is that the Wright's flyer doesn't count because the plane relied on separate pieces to take off rather than an integrated set of wheels that were actually part uh, of the aircraft. There are also... (laughs) Some very passionate Santos Dumont supporters who argue that the Wrights didn't fly in 1903 at all, suggesting that all their secrecy was really a cover-up and that their continued use of a launching rail was evidence that they had never really perfected their earlier designs. So I don't know if I would go so far as to say that's accurate, but in terms of this was a self-contained aircraft that took off under its own power rather than using a launching rail, I kind of, my opinion is that actually has some merit. Yeah. Santos Dumont didn't stop with the 14Bs. He went on to design the Demoiselle, or Dragonfly, a practical light aircraft, and he published the plans for anyone to use to build their own. But in 1910, he was seriously hurt in a plane crash, and that led to him having a number of ongoing physical issues, and it kept him from ever flying again. He had also genuinely, passionately loved flight, and he was terribly dismayed at the growing use of aircraft in warfare, and he was especially upset by it because he felt like he was personally responsible. There had been so many developments in aviation that were either his or that built off of work that he had done. And in addition to the lingering effects of the 1910 crash, he also became seriously ill. He died by suicide on July 23rd, 1932. In addition to the aviation awards he earned during his lifetime, he was a charismatic showman who became something of a celebrity. Contemporary accounts also describe him as flamboyant and somewhat feminine, and there's been some speculation about what his sexual orientation might have been. Today, he is still a highly revered figure in Brazil, known as the father of the Brazilian Air Force. Multiple roads and schools, as well as the town he was born in, have been named after him. Now we will move on to Richard Pierce, who for our first year or so on the show was the person most often mentioned when we brought up the Wright brothers. He was a New Zealand aviation pioneer born on December 3rd, 1877. He was a mostly self-taught inventor and farmer, and he was granted his first patent in 1902 for a new style of bicycle that used pedals that you pushed up and down rather than in a circle. He invented a lot of other devices too, including a potato planter and a needle threader. I'm thinking about what it would be like to ride a bike where you had to push the pedals up and down. It's kind of like a Stairmaster bike. That seems (laughs) seems sort of mean, but probably not. Uh, He was also working on ideas for powered flight. His first airplane design was a low-profile monoplane made of bamboo, wire, canvas, and steel tubing. On his first attempt to fly it, he took off from the road adjacent to his farm on the South Island. He flew 50 yards or so, and then he crashed into a gorse fence. So there were some witnesses to this flight. It definitely happened, but the details aren't recorded in any kind of official account. So there has been a whole lot of debate about exactly when this flight happened. Pierce was a bit of a loner. 
He never married. There weren't really people that he talked to day to day about his work. And he also didn't keep a lot of written records or notes. In most cases, when it comes to things that he worked on, patent applications are the only remaining documentation of what he was doing. And this is also why we have way less to share about his process than most of the other aviators we're talking about today. Much later, in 1915 and 1918, he wrote two different letters in which he remembered the flying having happened in February or March of 1904. Researchers reconstructed various bits of eyewitness testimony to arrive at a date of March 31, 1903, although some have also argued that it was actually in 1902. And this is why, for the first year or so after we joined the show, he was the person so often uh, cited as a a counter-argument to the Wright brothers. However, in 2014, while while doing research for a book on Pierce, aviation historian Errol Martin found an old article published in the Timaru Post on November 17th of 1909. And in this article, Pierce himself contradicts the idea that he was flying anywhere close to the time that the Wright brothers did. As he said to the reporter, quote, I did not attempt anything practical with the idea until in 1904, the St. Louis Exposition authorities offered a prize of $20,000 to the men to the man who invented and flew a flying machine over a specified course. I did not, as you know, succeed in winning the prize. Neither did anybody. He went on to describe some tests of the machine that he was currently working on, a comparatively lightweight craft powered by a 25-horsepower engine that he had designed himself, along with the rest of the plane's components. Even the tests that he described to this reporter were more like hops than true sustained flight. And uh, Errol Martin suspected that the reason that the 1902 or 1903 date persisted for as long as it did was because people were looking for substantiation that that flight occurred somewhere around that time, not six or seven years later. Pierce himself also said that he didn't fly before the Wright brothers uh, and that he became motivated to work on his own aircraft after their successes. So the counter-argument that we've heard most often in response to uh, Richard Pierce saying that he had not beaten the Wright brothers was that he was just being nice. (laughs) (laughs) He may have been lovely. (laughs) He may have just been being nice, but, like, that's not a very substantive counter-argument. Right. Uh, And Pierce died in Christchurch on July 29th, 1953. Most of the other men we've talked about today wound up influencing the greater field of aviation in some way, regardless of whether their attempts at controlled, powered flight were really all that successful. And this was less true for Richard Pierce, but it was only because being in New Zealand put him really far away from where most of that work was happening. His plane, though, was pretty sophisticated for the time. It had wing flaps, a rear elevator, and a wheeled steerable undercarriage, and a propeller with variable pitch blades. Because he was so physically removed from most of the other people physically doing this work, though, not a lot of people who were trying to come up with workable aircraft actually saw it or got to learn from it. Yeah, it makes you wonder if he were closer to those people, if his innovations wouldn't have accelerated the development of flight in a very serious way. And for a time after his death, Pierce's work was nearly forgotten. Fortunately, knowledge of his efforts did survive. 
an auctioneer offered his last plane to the Canterbury Aero Club, and aviation engineer George Bolt later bought it and donated it to the Museum of Transport and Technology in Auckland, where a replica is now part of their collection. Although it seems unlikely that Pierce achieved true sustained flight in his aircraft, modern replicas powered with ultralight aircraft engines have been capable of flight. So we're going to take one more quick sponsor break before we talk about our last first flight, which was uh, by Gustav Whitehead. I'm Tracy V. Wilson from Stuff You Missed in History Class. Did you know small businesses make up 99.9% of all businesses in the United States? The world is powered by entrepreneurs. And if you're a small business owner or even someone dreaming of starting your own business, then you'll want to check out Season 2 of Mind the Business, small business success stories from Ruby Studio, from iHeartMedia, and Intuit QuickBooks. And every episode hosts Austin Hankwitz and Janice Torres talk to entrepreneurs about how they've grown from the lessons of launching and nurturing a small business, and how they have found success being their own boss. From the excitement of first starting out to finding the right tools and resources to process invoices and payments like QuickBooks Money, you won't want to miss these inspiring stories of entrepreneurship and discovering ways to business differently so you can too. And if you're a small business owner or even someone dreaming of starting your own business, then you'll want to check out Season 2 of Mind the Business, small business success stories from Ruby Studio, from iHeartMedia, and Intuit QuickBooks. Me. Focus Features presents Back to Black. I want people to hear my voice and just forget their troubles. Experience the music and her story. Know this. I ain't no spy girl. Like never before. That's my daughter. That's my Amy. On the big screen. I want to be remembered. For just being me. Amy Winehouse. Back to Black. Directed by Sam Taylor Johnson. Rated R. Under 17. Not a minute without parent. Only in theaters May 17th. Today I'm going to give you some straightforward advice on how to deal with naughty kids. How about instead of timeouts, time ins. Time for you to start paying some bills. I'm J.B. Smoove, and that was a full episode of my new podcast, Straightforward. Inspired by guaranteed straightforward pricing from AT&T Fiber. Get what you want without the complicated. AT&T Fiber, live like a giggillionaire. Available wherever you get your podcast. Limited availability in select areas. Visit at slash hypergig for details. So in a weird little irony... Gustav Whitehead is not the name who is most often tossed out when we mention the Wright brothers, but he is the aviation pioneer who has gotten a lot of the most first-in-flight attention in recent years, particularly in the United States. He was born on January 1st, 1874, and immigrated to the United States from Bavaria. He settled in Connecticut and changed his surname to Whitehead from Weisskopf. The idea that Whitehead might have flown first has come up periodically since the 19-teens, and the most recent big wave of attention uh, came in 2013. And that's when editor Paul Jackson endorsed the idea that the credit should go to Whitehead in the centennial edition of Jane's All the World's Aircraft. Australian John Brown launched the website gustav-whitehead.com that same year, laying out various pieces of evidence that Whitehead was the first to fly, including what's purportedly a piece of photographic evidence. So here are the claims. On August 18, 1901, 
The Bridgeport Sunday Herald reported that Whitehead had made a half-mile flight four days before, on August 14th, aboard a very bird-like monoplane known as Number 21. And as still happens today, other publications picked up this story and mirrored it in their own pages without doing any additional reporting of their own on it. This report listed two men as having helped Whitehead in this effort, and those were James Dickey and Andrew Seeley. In an article in American Inventor published April 1st, 1902, Whitehead himself also claimed to have flown for several miles over Long Island on January 17th of that year. He claimed that flight and another shorter one took place on the same day. From there, Whitehead made a failed bid to enter an aircraft in the aeronautical competition at the Louisiana Purchase Exposition in St. Louis in 1904. That was the same one that Richard Pierce referenced in his 1909 newspaper interview. Whitehead built several other aircraft between 1906 and 1909, none of which ever apparently flew. When a Scientific American reporter visited him in 1903, he was actually working on a glider and not on a powered aircraft. There were doubts about his claims, even at the time. A much different article appeared in the Bridgeport Evening Farmer in 1902, titled Unrealized Dreams, Last Flop of the Whitehead Flying Machine. It detailed the various gripes of Whitehead's financial backer, Herman Lindy, who had invested $6,000 in two machines and was disappointed in the fact that neither of them could actually fly. The Bridgeport Post published a similar critical article on the same day. Whitehead died on October 10th, 1927. And then in the 1930s, somebody stumbled over that initial article that had reported that he had a successful flight. So people started trying to track down confirmation of whether he had flown or not. Andrew Seeley could not be located when he wasn't listed in any local directories. They did, however, find James Dickey, who not only said he had not witnessed the flight, but also said he was not even there, he did not know any Andrew Seeley, and he had never even heard of any flight in that or any other Whitehead aircraft. When an interviewer tracked him down in 1936, he said, quote, I believe the entire story of the Herald was imaginary and grew out of the comments Whitehead discussing what he hoped to get from his plane. It's also impossible to go back and review Whitehead's notes and schematics to try to replicate his aircraft and see if it actually worked, because he didn't leave any. A few photographs do exist of his 1901 machine, although all of those show it on the ground and not in the air. No photograph is known to exist of the machine that purportedly flew several miles in 1902, and no photographs exist of one of his aircraft in flight. There are photos of an unpowered glider, as well as one that was flown without a person aboard. This new, in quotation marks, photo evidence that was alluded to in 2013 is a really heavily enlarged detail of an exhibition that was shown at the Aero Club of America in January 1906. This vastly zoomed-in-on picture shows a white blob shaped roughly like one of Whitehead's airplanes when viewed from above. People looking to support Whitehead's claims did interview a number of witnesses between 1934 and 1974. However, their statements contradict one another, or they're demonstrably false, and at least one of them was paid to give that story. 
All of those statements were documented at least 30 years after the flight purportedly took place. And meanwhile, his family, employers, financial backers, and other people who were working in the field of aeronautics at the time generally agree that none of his planes ever left the ground. Yeah, accurately reconstructing exactly when something happened 30 years or more after it happened, when there's not anything actually written down about it to jog your memory, that's kind of a tall order. So in 2013, the Smithsonian published a number of lengthy rebuttals of all the various Whitehead evidence. And then Scientific American did as well, refuting Whitehead's supporters' use of its own past reporting as support for their claims. So people basically were pointing to old Scientific American articles being like, well, right there it says (laughs) that he flew. And then Scientific American was like, actually, that's not what it says. Supporters often claim that the only reason that the Smithsonian won't seriously consider the possibility of Whitehead beating the Wright brothers to powered flight is that the contract they signed for the flyer specifies that they won't display a challenge to the Wright brothers' claim to be first. But as quoted in The Economist, aeronautics curator Tom Crouch said, quote, Should persuasive evidence for a prior flight be presented, my colleagues and I would have the courage and honesty to admit the new evidence and risk the loss of the right flyer. This whole disagreement (laughs) did basically (laughs) lead Ohio and North Carolina to put aside their differences and basically both say not Connecticut, though. One of the things that gets pointed to a lot in this whole thing is like, look at how many other articles say this happened. They can't all be wrong, but like they're all articles that are... Spawned from one account? Yeah, they're all reporting one article, which continues to be an issue in media today. (laughs) When one thing will come out and a bunch of other people will re-report that one thing without doing any additional reporting on their own. And then like there's now there's a story that's false and everyone believes it. Thanks so much for joining us on this Saturday. Since this episode is out of the archive, if you heard an email address or a Facebook URL or something similar over the course of the show, that could be obsolete now. Our current email address is historypodcast at iheartradio.com. Our old How Stuff Works email address no longer works. You can find us all over social media at Missed in History. And you can subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, the iHeartRadio app, and wherever else you listen to podcasts. Stuff You Missed in History Class is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. This is Malcolm Gladwell from Revisionist History. eBay Motors is here for the ride. With some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Brake kits, 
LED headlights, whatever you need, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. With every CBD product claiming to do something different, it's nearly impossible to decide what's best for you. Lazarus Naturals pioneered the farm-to-front-door model of transparency where they handle each step of the production process to ensure quality, potency, and consistency. Scannable labels allow you to see the test results of your hemp batch so you can be confident in the safety and quality. Visit LazarusNaturals.com today. Lazarus Naturals, committed to improving your life as well as the world around you. Not available in Idaho, Iowa, or South Dakota. 